0: Welcome to the Rock of Grace Cortland Campus Podcast, where we aim to lead people like you to follow Jesus together. We have a new podcast each week with a message that is prepared with you in mind. So here's this week's message. So I'm excited to share with you this morning. Um, we just completed our, hopefully what I believe to be our final work day over at the Warren Campus yesterday, and we had a great response and turnout. And, uh, we have, just kind of looking back uh, over the last several months, just uh, really renovated that entire space, and that happens in part because uh, you're all's giving, uh, our kinsmen Church is giving, the money we were able to raise from that, as well as just the volunteer manpower we were able to bring in. So uh, a big thank you from us at the Warren Campus for uh, your financial contributions, as well as your time serving and helping us, uh, because it was a huge undertaking, and we could not have done it without you. Uh, but this morning, I want to continue in the series on First Peter. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to parallel First Peter with a story out of the Old Testament that I think we all on some level can identify with. Uh, that's what I love about Scripture is that no matter where we're at in life, no matter what we're dealing with and going through, we can all identify with parts of these stories and these passages uh, because the Word of God is living and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through those, right? So let's pray together and uh, let's dive on in. Father, we love you this morning, and we thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We honor you in your presence today, and Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak to our hearts and to our minds that we might be challenged by your word, and that we might be changed by you. In Jesus' name, church, we said... Amen. So this morning, like I said, uh, and the video was so fitting because uh, it it kind of ties into where we're going and what we're talking about. See, if you start to break down really what Peter is trying to help us understand through uh, chapters at least one and two, which is as far as we've gotten so far, is that uh, there is a right way to live life that honors the Lord, but also becomes attractional to other people that they see what you're doing and are drawn to Christ because of it. And that's really the overarching theme of, at the very least, chapter 2, but really the book of Peter. He's helping the believer understand that there is a, a, a way to live life after you come to Christ and what he does is he begins to parallel the life you led before Christ. And I think if we all uh, power up our ma- our brains and our memories for a moment and we start to think back, there is a difference between how we lived prior to Christ and hopefully how we're living now. It doesn't mean you don't have sins and struggles and issues. It means that you're at least aware, aware of them and that you're actively in partnership with God working to address them in your life. For the reason of wanting to reflect him better to the world, Amen. So, but I want to parallel that thought with a story that you are all familiar with, out of Judges chapter sixteen, because I think it's so fitting as we look to uh, understand the power of temptation in our lives and the way the Lord wants to bring us through that. So, we're going to look at Judges chapter sixteen, verse one, to whenever I decide to stop reading, until I get tired of reading. Um, So, it's on the screens behind me if you do not have your Bible today. Uh, So I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. It will be very similar to any of the translations you have with you. Uh, But I want to read this to you uh, because it's a story of a man named Samson, who uh, for the most part is not considered to be, uh, and I want to be careful how I say this, uh, he's not considered in scripture to be the brightest crayon in the box. All right, Samson is oftentimes portrayed as this kind of uh, bumbling, uh, overly strong, muscular, kind of Herculean individual who has all of the uh, physical attributes but is lacking in the mental maturity to, uh, to sustain the anointing that God has put on his life. And you'll see that come alive as we dive into uh, this passage. So, uh, Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, and then we're going to read in First Peter, and we're going to hopefully tie it together, put a bow on it, and you're going to be like, oh, whew, fantastic. Verse 1, it says, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a prostitute there and had relations with her. Bible dives right on in with what Samson's doing. Verse 2 says, When it was reported to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, it says, They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. It says, then they kept silent all night, saying, Let's wait until morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay asleep until midnight, and at midnight he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two doorposts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Verse 4 says, After this, it came about that he was in love with a woman in the valley of Sorak, whose name was Delilah. Verse 5 says, So the governors of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him and see where his great strength lies, how we can overpower him so that we may bind him to humble him, then we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So here we have the first beginnings of the story. We understand from the very first verse that Samson has a problem that needs addressed in his life. In this particular passage of Scripture, the problem that Samson is dealing with is Samson has a pair of wandering eyes, and he struggles with lust on the inside. And because of that, Samson seeks out a prostitute, and he has relations with her. Now understand, in the point of Samson's life, Samson is God's champion. God has anointed Samson. Uh, with this supernatural strength, if you will, that he cannot be defeated. And he has been wreaking havoc on the enemies of God since he was born, essentially. And the presence of God would come upon him. Samson would hulk up, like that shirt, right? Samson would hulk up, and he would destroy the enemy. It was a very cool deal, right? Nobody has to die. We'll just send in Samson. Samson will do the work, and we'll all come out better for it. The problem is, is Samson's maturity and character could not sustain the level of anointing that God placed upon him. Because we see in verse 1 that Samson has a wandering eye and uh, and a problem with lust, and uh, to fulfill that urge on the inside of him, he seeks out this prostitute and had relations with her. Now, the enemies of God, in this case the Philistines, are watching very closely because they are tired of getting their butt kicked by Samson. And they are looking for any advantage in which they can overtake him so that they can stop losing the battle to him. And so they discover that Samson loves this woman named Delilah. And so what they do is they go to her, and it says that what they want her to do is they want her to entice him for the express purpose of discovering what is the secret to his success over us? Where does his strength come from, right? And that's what her mission is in Samson's life. It's just like in our life, if we're going to start paralleling the, 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 what we're reading to the spiritual place we find ourselves in, it's just like it in our life that the sin and the temptations of the world exist to entice us. Everybody has a Delilah somewhere in their life. You may not call it Delilah. You may call it pride. You may call it anger. You may call it lust. You may call it selfishness. You may call it any of the other things. But at its core, what it's trying to do is entice you away from God so that you'll give in to it. And in doing that, you'll sacrifice the thing that makes you different than the world. And we're going to talk about that when we dive into 1 Peter here in a few moments. So we have this story where Delilah has agreed to do that. So Delilah said to Samson, and this is where we start to understand that Samson may not be the brightest crayon in the box. Because it's not as if Delilah's like sneaky and sly about what she's wanting here. It's not like she's like slow playing it. Really, she just comes out and asks him. She says, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you can be bound uh, to humble you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh animal tendons, which is really gross, They have not been dried, which is even grosser. Then I will become weak and be like any other man. So Samson at some level has at least an awareness of what's going on because he doesn't just give it all over to Delilah right away. He's like, wait a second. Why is this woman asking me the secret of my strength? And I know from childhood that God put his anointing on me. I was born in Nazareth, and there were some things that went along with that. And one of the things that went along with that is that I was not permitted to cut my hair because that was the secret of my strength. And Samson, at the very least, realizes that this may be a little fishy. And so he makes up, an, or he makes up a, a lie, essentially. He lies to her. And he says, look, if you bind me with seven fresh animal tendons, still gross, that aren't dried, then I will become weak like any other man. So what does Delilah do? She's like, hey, guess what? It was super easy. I figured it out. And so she goes back and she tells the governors of the Philistines. Verse 9 says she had men prepared for an ambush in an inner room and said to them, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. It says, but he tore the tendons to pieces just like the thread of flax is torn apart when it comes close, uh, too close to fire. It says, so his strength was not discovered. See, Samson is beginning to play a very dangerous game with the thing that made Samson different than the rest of them. Because it's not enough that he's in love with a woman that he has no business spending time with. And he's at least aware that what she's trying to do is probably not in his best interests because he makes up this lie. But yet he's starting the process of being enticed away from the thing that makes him so special. Verse 10 said, so Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have toyed with me and told me lies. Well, yeah. Now, please tell me how you may be bound. Again, not the brightest crayon. She's not, again, she's not like covering it up. We want to bind and afflict you. Just tell us how to do it. Samson's like, well, this this is probably not right, but I don't know why it's not right, so I'll just keep making up lies. Then he said to her, if they bind, uh, bind me tightly with new ropes, as if apparently old ropes aren't sufficient, which have not been used, there's somebody in the corner like making rope real quick, he says, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Okay. So Delilah's like, got it. Part two, the sequel. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. He, this man must be the heaviest sleeper on the planet. <laughs> like, I don't know how this one like binds somebody with rope and he not know about it, right? Like, He's just tiny, like, it's, it's a little weird. He must have just passed out and it's like my bulldog. That dog is the loudest snorer on the planet. I can hear it upstairs when I'm downstairs. So, so Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men in the ambush were waiting in the inner room. It says, but he tore the ropes from his arms like thread. At this point, if I'm the Philistines, I'm not signing up to be on the ambush committee. It says he tore the ropes from his arms like thread, and obviously Samson kills, him, kills them. Verse 13 says, so then Delilah said to Samson, up till now you have toyed with me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with the pin, it's like he went to the salon, then I will be weak like any other man. See, I want you to understand the progression here because Samson knows that the secret of his strength is tied to his hair. In the first two encounters he has with Delilah, the hair is never mentioned as one of the things that would cost Samson his strength. It was animal tendons, bloody animal tendons, weird, and it was new ropes. But now as we progress in the story, uh, Samson is being worn down and enticed to the point that now the hair is beginning to come into the conversation. If you weave my hair braid my hair, right? Then I will be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah wove the seven locks of his hair with the web. Not sure what that means. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. And the ambush committee again, no more. And then what Delilah begins to do, and this is what temptation begins to do in our life. And I want you to understand this this morning. Because prior to this next passage in verse 15, what we discover is there, it's almost this mechanical, tell me, give me something, it's failed so far. And Delilah smartens up here in the last moment. And now she begins to pull on the heartstrings of the man that she knows is desperately in love with her. Because then she comes to him and said, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You will always go where your heart takes you. And if we're not careful, the sins and the traps and the temptations, the Delilahs, if you will, of the world, will lead you to a place that becomes very difficult to come back from. That's why the Bible says that we are to guard our hearts, because it's that place of emotion. And and what you'll discover, and what you probably already know, is that when you get into places of emotional response, we oftentimes don't make smart, sound, methodically strategic decisions, right? Anybody an excellent thinker when they're emotional about something... Right? When somebody makes me upset, I'm not the kind, I'm not wired to initially like stop and think through like, what do I do next? My initial thought on the inside is, how do quickly do I destroy you? Right? And that's the emotion that comes out on the inside of me. But the challenge for us as believers is to push past that emotional moment so that we can then gain clarity from the Holy Spirit so we can move accordingly in what God is asking us to do. Amen? Verse 16 says, And it came about when she pressed him daily in her, uh, with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. Uh, other translations say that she vexed him to his soul. Really, what that means is uh, she nagged him to the point that he no longer wanted to live. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell, ah! That's the moment. That's what she was doing to him. And verse 17 says, look, if you'll just stop, I'll tell you. It says, so he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, a razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Boom. There's the secret that is out, right? It's like Nestle Tollhouse telling you how they make the cookies, right? It's like Prego telling you how they make the sauce, He tells her everything. He says, if I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Verse 18 says, when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, because remember, she's now operating from a place of emotion in him. She sent word and called the governors of the Philistines, saying, come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart it says then the governors of the philistines came up to her and brought up the money in their hands <clears throat> excuse me and he and she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. again very heavy sleeper then she began to humble him and his strength left him she said the philistines are upon you samson and he awoke from his sleep and said i will go out as other times and shake myself free but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Verse 21 says, then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and restrained him with bronze chains, and he became a grinder in the prison. We'll stop there. Actually, we'll finish 22. It says, however, the hair on his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. See, I read you that story this morning because I want to illustrate to you that There is a progression that comes through temptation. It is not just simply, today I felt tempted and I dealt with it. But rather the enemy is so skillful in how he methodically approaches our lives that it comes little by little, bit by bit. And before you know it, you are enticed away. Look at the progression in Samson. It was these three experiences that he had, culminating in the fourth where he shares the entire story. But what you'll find is it was progressive in everything that he did. It started out, do this with tendons, then it was new ropes, and then he includes the hair for the first time in the third encounter, which is the leading ground to, if you really love me, right? Then you'll tell me. Every relationship under this, if you loved me, right? He finally gives in and he tells her. And because of that, he sacrificed the thing that made him different than everybody else. He sacrificed the thing that made him stand out amongst the crowd, and he sacrificed the thing that God had destined him to do to the Philistines in that moment. Now, I want to jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2, because that's where we're really supposed to land this morning. And we dive in in verse 1, and I'm not going to read all of it to you. I'll paraphrase some of this. It says, therefore, verse 1 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies who long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted, uh, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Verse 4 says and coming to him to, as to a living stone which has been rejected by people but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is uh, this is contained in scripture. It says, behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in uh, in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7 says, the precious value then is for you who believe, but check this out, but for unbelievers, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and uh, and to this they were also appointed." Verse 9 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. We'll stop there. See, as you jump into the book of Peter, what you should first consider is the author of, Who's the Who's writing this story? Because Peter has an incredible legacy in history of experience in every area that he's talking about. When God discovers, or rather, when Jesus discovers Peter, what you'll find is that Peter was a, uh, uh, and I don't even know that Scripture would call him a good fisherman, but he was a fisherman nonetheless. And Peter is this zealous individual who, from the beginning, dives headfirst in, right? So much so that at one point, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, right? Peter is the same individual when Jesus is being captured in the Garden of Gethsemane, cuts off the ear of the servant. And Jesus like, got to put that back on real quick. One last thing. Thanks, Peter, right? Peter then is the individual who proceeds to deny Christ three times, so full of guilt and shame, runs from the scene and is nowhere to be found during the crucifixion and any time post. It wasn't until after Jesus resurrected, tells the woman who were there to observe it, go gather my disciples and Peter. I love that Jesus specifically points out Peter and says, you better get this boy back here. And then that same Peter who Christ restores post-resurrection... Stands up on the day of Pentecost and delivers this incredible message. Where in Acts chapter two it says it was so anointed and powerful that the listeners were cut to the heart, which means that they were so convicted of their sin that they repent. And the Bible says that thousands were added to the church that day because of he, him standing up. So Peter has this type of roller coaster experience with God. And so what we what we discover is he's not writing from the place of just wisdom and knowledge because he read a good book, but rather Peter's coming from the school of hard knocks and most of what he writes to us is from a place of experience because he lived it out. He saw what it was like to be all in. He felt what it was like to have it all taken away. He felt the incredible uh, power of God in his restoration and he finally steps into his anointing when God uses him on the day of Pentecost to preach the message of what was going on. What an incredible story. And that's the frame of mind that he comes to when he begins to write. And he tells us we are to live as believers in a world that doesn't uphold our values, our standards, and our principles that we hold as believers. He's talking to uh, the church, for instance, about, hey, this is, listen, this is how you're to talk. This is what you're to put away. This is what you're to flee from. This is what makes you look like those that God called you out of. Right, So he begins this conversation in his writing. I would tell you that the pull of temptation is a current that if swept up in, will lead you further away from where God is calling you to go. Understand that when God has called you to something, his intention is that you begin moving there to get to it. But all along the way, there are these stumbling blocks and roadblocks that pop up from time to time with the intent of derailing where you are wanting to go. And if you're not careful, you'll end up taking the wrong turn and you'll end up getting miles away from where God always envisioned your life to be. And the enemy stands on the sidelines and he claps his hand in celebration because another person has sacrificed their anointing and their calling. The temptation of our lives always attacks the purpose of God on our lives. The temptation always attacks the weak spots in our lives. And that's why doing a regular checkup on the areas of our life that need to be addressed is essential. And temptation always increases the more we give it an audience. Remember Samson? He continuously entertained Delilah. And before you know it, Samson has his eyes gouged out. The presence of God has left him. And God's champion is now someone's servant. Peter shows us the difference between, listen, when you build your life on the world and when you build your life on Christ. Peter shows us the picture of what we are being built into. Let's jump back into the verse. Verse 5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. It says, behold, I am laying in Zion, a choice stone, right? A precious stone. The precious value then, verse seven, is for you who believe, but for unbelievers, a stone which the builders rejected. That This became the chief cornerstone. See, the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is with Christ being the, the chief stone, you have now something firm to build your life on and you can move forward. To the unbeliever, that stone becomes a stumbling block because it exists to remind them that they're not where they're supposed to be. So they continuously trip over it because the standard of God minus the grace and mercy of God is condemnation to the person who doesn't believe. But rather the standard of God to the believer with the addition of grace and mercy is freedom to move forward where Christ has called us to be. Does that make sense? I hope so. If not, you can email uh, dbrock at rockofgrace.org. I promise I'll get it. Right, <laughs> he'll forward it over to me. <laughs> Jumping down to verse 11, as I look at the time, it says, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers. So again, he's making the distinction that how you live in this world should look very much different than how the rest of the world lives. And if it doesn't then that is an opportunity for you to step back to a place of self-reflection and say what about my life can shift so that I better resemble the God who I love. And listen, I'm not necessarily this morning talking about the overt like uh big time, what we would consider like the big time sins like that everybody sees. Because there may be things in your life that you may not see as sinful, the Bible may not even address them, but because the Holy Spirit has put a conviction in your heart, you now are responsible to address. And what you'll discover with regard to some of the things that go on in this world, what you may have a conviction on, somebody else may not. I'm not talking about overtly sins that we all know to be true from Scripture. I'm talking about that gray area. We're like, is this right? Is this wrong? Should I do this? And the Holy Spirit might come to you and say, you know what, that's not good for you. It's the idea that all things are, uh, are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, right? But Susie, somebody down the road, she, she may not carry that conviction yet or at all. And it might be acceptable for her with regard to where she's at with Christ. And so you are responsible for the individualization of your faith. That's why the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What that is indicating is that my relationship with my God is personal and I am accountable from a place of personhood to what the Holy Spirit is talking to me about through his word. Rather than the overarching, we all must be doing the same thing at all times. Again, not talking about the overtly outward sins. But 11 is saying, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify the God on the day of his visitation. I want to break that verse down for you as we get ready to wrap this up. If you begin breaking down verse 11 and you begin studying out in the original language, this is really what it's saying. I urge you to not be comfortable, but to resist that which is forbidden. That word, when it talks about fleshly lusts, is this Greek word called uh, concupiscence, maybe butchered that. But really what it is, is this uh, longing for that which is forbidden. The things that violate his word. So you understand that we are created in God's image to reflect his image to the world. But when we sin, we distort that image. And listen, I'm not, again, I'm not telling you this morning that we don't have things we go through. The Bible is clear. We all sin and fall short of the glory. But when we find ourselves in places of repetitive sin, what we end up doing is we distort the image of God that was put on the inside of us to be the attractional thing that draws the world to Jesus. The world needs to see a clear and true picture of Christ, but when we sin, we show the world a pixelated image that cannot be fully seen. You ever get anyone ever receive a fuzzy photo or see a fuzzy photo on their phone and you end up sitting there scratching your head trying to make out what's in the photo? Anybody ever had that moment? That's what happens when the world looks at Christians and say, I didn't think that's how it was supposed to look. I'm not sure that that's what it's supposed to look like. And rather than giving them elements of clarity that help them understand that there is a difference between the believer who has this new birth experience in Christ and the unbeliever who's still lost in their own uh, toils, We give them this mixed message, pixelated image that they have to then try to sort through. And it becomes difficult for the world to see the attractional element that would draw somebody to Christ. When Christ isn't properly seen in us, the message becomes distorted and people don't see the gospel that comes through Christ. So it says, those fleshly lusts, the passions of the world that captivate us and steal our gaze, rob our purpose and diminish our destiny and tarnish our legacy. That that term wage war, if you study it in the original, is a militant action. And what it means is that it's a group of military advancing in battle against us. It wages war against our soul. And the soul word in this original is, when translated, refers to the air in us. Really, it's the breath of life. It's the biggest distinction between us as humanity and the rest of creation. So I want to put this all together now that we have a clear understanding of what the original intent of the verse is saying. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from that which is forbidden that wage war in a military fashion with the intent to destroy you against your soul or the very thing that makes you different than the rest of creation. It's a better picture when we understand it in the original. The purpose, uh, the enemy's purpose in our life through the vehicle of sin is to tarnish the image of God on the inside of us because what he discovered was that if he can't stop me from serving God, what he can do is distort the image of God on the inside of me, and in doing that, it will keep other people from coming to Christ through my life example. Does that make sense? And then we close 1 Peter chapter 2. And what it does is it reminds us that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. And that through that sacrifice, we have what we call a reliable shepherd we can trust will lead us to safety. You know, I love the terms, things like holy nation, royal priesthood of chosen people. Because what Peter is saying in that moment, and if we could put on some music in the back, What Peter's saying to us is, listen, it's not just a distinction of this is who you are and this is who the world is, or this is to the unbeliever. But rather, it's an elevation of where we get to go through Christ. We don't remain where he found us but the beauty of the gospel when we run to Jesus is he brings us into a family, and in that family, he not only forgives our sins, graces our lives, dispenses mercy in times of struggle, he elevates us to a place that we ourselves could never have gotten to on our own. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I want to challenge you this morning in this. What the world needs from us, and I'm, I'm including myself, I'm a very flawed individual. You're a very flawed individual. We all sin. That's not the point of this. But what we need to become to the world is a true picture of what Christ fully alive in our life looks like. It needs to, the world needs to see the necessity of the gospel and the assurance that we have through Christ. Listen, Samson was a very flawed champion that couldn't win a battle against his own temptation. And when we allow the temptations in our life to reign, we sacrifice the power of God on our lives to deliver us from those temptations. The power of God is one that can deliver us from the present snares and traps we have fallen into. And I want to tell you, I I want to give you a bit of of hope and encouragement today. Sometimes you hear messages like this and the natural tendency is like, we have to fix it all right now. And that's a great heart. Don't ever lose that heart. But here's what I would challenge you with. And this is something the Lord is challenging me with. I wanna encourage you to simply in your own life and your own struggles and the things you're going through, I wanna encourage you this morning to simply win the day. You know, nobody wins a war in the first battle, but rather a war is is won over the the little successes and victories over time, The the little battles that are won. And you slowly but surely gain confidence in knowing that I won today. You know, because I won today, guess what? I think I can win tomorrow. You know, that's two days. Before you know it, guess what? I just won the week. You know what? I won two weeks. I won three. I won four. You know what? I I won the month. You know, there's a friend of mine from Indianapolis on Facebook. Uh, His name's Matt. Really nice guy. Really cool guy. Has a very, very interesting past. And he was an alcoholic and struggled, still struggles a little, or did struggle. But he's been posting uh, online, uh, updating Facebook from time to time. And yesterday he put on there like 346 days sober. Incredible. He loves Jesus. He's serving the Lord. He's plugged into a church. You know what that tells me? Matt is winning the day. And in just a week and a half or so, Matt's gonna win the year. And so Fight the pull to say, you know, i got to fix it all. Because what will happen is when you fall short, discouragement will set in and you'll just stop. But you know what? When you go home, whatever the sin, the struggle, the temptation, the problem, the issue is, just win today. And then when you get up in the morning, first thing that comes to your mind is remind yourself, guess what? I won yesterday. I determined to win today as well. Start somewhere. Amen? Let me pray for you this morning. I'm going to give you a moment of reflection because what I want to do is I want the Holy Spirit to have a moment to just bring some things to the surface in you. Nothing you're going to share with me, nothing uh, you, you need to talk about because it's a relationship between you and God. And if he brings something to the surface where he's saying, you know what, this needs to exit your life or this isn't good for your life or any of the above, then I want you to commit at the very least, you know what, I'm aware of that now, Holy Spirit. I'm listening. My heart is open to you. You know what? Today, I'm going to win today. And then I'm going to go into the battle tomorrow, and I'm going to determine to win tomorrow. And if you slip up along the way, guess what? There's another day coming where you can win the day. And as those days stack up before you know it, you'll have won the war. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to a minute before we close. And I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit to bring anything up to your mind that he's saying, you know what, this is is destroying you. This is enticing you away. This This is costing you. This is distorting the image of God that Peter's talking to us about. So, Father, right now, in Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, your word says that those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. So, Lord, we just open our ears, our spiritual ears to you today, our hearts to you today, that we would be listeners Lord, that we would hear what you're you're wanting to bring out of our lives, those things that aren't good in our lives. Help us today to know what those are, that, Father, we would be people who win the day. And when we win today, we're gonna win tomorrow. We're gonna win the week, the month, the year. And eventually, Father, we're gonna win the war because our heart is turned towards you to please honor and serve you. So help us today in Jesus' name. Take the next 30 seconds to a minute and just say, Holy Spirit, Show me what I need to lay down and start winning the day in. You can turn that up in the back. Lord, right now, Lord, we just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you speak, that you turn our hearts and that you convict. Conviction is such a tool of grace because it gives us an opportunity to make a correction. So Lord, just bring it to our hearts that we might start winning the day in areas of lust, of temptation, of anger, Lord, of selfishness, of pride. In any area of our life, Father, that we would always, better reflect you to the world and that we would understand that, Lord, there's a difference between how we are to live. Not in any way saying we're better, but that, Lord, we found the better through you. So we say, have your way, Father, today in Jesus' name. Amen. Because I love you so much. If you want to stay and pray, you are always welcome to do that here. Uh, but if you have to go, we love you. Uh, do me a favor, pray the Browns win today. Uh, that'd be awesome. But have an incredible afternoon. It's been an honor to get to hang out at the Cortland campus for a while. And uh, we're excited to launch our Warren campus here in a few months. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for joining us. If this message impacted you or you would like to get in contact with us, you can visit us at www.rockofgrace.org. Also, be sure to share this message with a friend or subscribe so you never miss a message. God bless.